Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We are in our respective uh, hiding holes. Bunkers. Bunkers. Yes. In our respective bunkers. <laughs> I, I talked to folks who still haven't left the house since March last year, man. Like, yeah. We're old pros at not leaving the house. Yeah, no. It's like, oh, wow. I get to do what I always wanted to do and nobody's mad at me now. <laughs> it's my duty. <laughs> To hang out in my bunker. I'm a good citizen for doing what I want to do. With my 11 square feet of screen. And uh, that would be weird, 11 square feet. Maybe 12 square feet would be better. But it's tricky, yeah. No, I've definitely been looking around my office going, you know what? I don't have enough uh, screens. I need more screens. More screens. More screens. And now you can justify them, right? Yeah. I, well, was I ever going to have a real problem in the first place? But yeah, probably more screens not. is good. Probably not. I guess that's just me that has that problem. Anyway, uh, let's get busy with Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, man, what do you got? Well, you know, I had something interesting, but I think I'll save it for the next time because right before we started talking, you said, I got this new recording rig and I love it. And I really hadn't heard of it so you're gonna make me talk about I'm gonna the PA. Make you talk well, i was talking about it anyway yeah. so yeah well we'll tell everybody what it is well let, let me tell you how it got here right. like for starters i don't like recording on a pc and i don't think you do either yeah i like to have i mean i do it because everything is good and working but i prefer right. to have a dedicated machine yes yeah and for a long time i was using my zoom h6 which is really the portable yep Four channels built in, extendable to six channels. And I had it on a little, you know, tripod stand, so I got a good view of it. And that's nice. Yeah. Like, I got nothing bad to say about the H6. Right. But I was looking for more. Like, and the, and the big thing is mix minus. Yeah. Right? It, which is that I can have multiple channels coming in and then multiple channels going out without their own channel in Yes. It. Mix minus is a hard and, problem. Uh, We've been trying to solve it for yeah. years. Yes, it's a complicated problem. And it's funny now because we use stuff like Zencaster that takes a lot of that stuff away. Right. But the PodTrack P8 is that device. It literally is six channels in. It's actually eight channels in, but six channels with six outputs, mixed minus, by default. So interesting. So you – now, mixed minus is really important when you have um, – multiple people coming in but usually i find that everybody wants to hear themselves in their headphones if you've got six yeah. people around a table they want to hear themselves just as much as they want to hear you so where does the mix minus come into play yeah well and it, and it doesn't really matter if you're sitting around a table which is also often what this could you know if you look at the pictures yeah. of the p8 it's a bunch of people sitting around with microphones and yeah. headphones on right and so the fact that they have all the headphone jacks built in and so forth so you're not doing separate headphone splitting right. is great. The mix minus is simply a configuration setting, which when I use external sources, right. which is what I normally do is, is really useful. So you have somebody uh, although, come in on Skype on one channel right. and zoom on another channel. And so the two, th the two things I think are really useful are there's a channel that is meant for smartphones. Mm. And so it has the same Jack as your headphone Jack with the microphone integrated. Yeah. The BTA. So you can get a cable like that, just plug it into something like my Surface Book, and there you go. You know, no additional wiring needed. Yeah, nice. Although it's not balanced. It, if there's, if you've got noise near it, it's going to be noisy. So that's got its own problems. Mm -hmm. uh, the other useful feature is it's got a, a USB-C jack on it to plug it into a computer. Right. 
which and I record onto SD cards in the unit, but then I can also switch to transfer mode, which then appears as a drive on my computer, and I can copy the files off of it. Very good. Immediate, you know, and you know my reflex. I immediately want copies of all audio files. Now with USB, one on the SD, one in the machine. Then I immediately upload to you, right. so we're up to three copies. So maybe we won't lose it, right? <laughs> so do you also get the uh, when you plug it into USB the thing as an audio device with eight separate yes, inputs? Yes, you do. In and out. So when you plug it in, you suddenly have a PA microphone, a P8, a microphone, and a P8 speaker. But do do you have eight ins and eight outs? No, just one in, okay. one out. It's but it and it and it has its own channel assignment. Okay, so you get a mix of whatever you want to send right. out that out or in or whatever. Yeah. Okay. And it's USB C, so it's all digital, which for me is useful because the computers are fairly far away yeah. to keep the noise down. Right. And uh, and so running wire running audio wires in and out of PCs at that length just means noisy, right? Yeah. And I've tried it with XLR and so forth. It's all a pain in the butt, but going digital is the way to go. It just made the problem go away. Anyway, I mean, not necessarily cheap. I mean, it's a few hundred dollars for a P8, but you know, if you've got a bunch of stuff to record, I can't argue with how well the thing is working for me. Yeah, that's cool. I think uh, I think I'm going to buy one. Hear that, honey? I say, and it, and it, <laughs> but you know the other piece about it, and I got to. I'm this kind of geek, right? It's like I like stuff that makes me smile when you see it sitting there on its little stand in its corner, wired up, like ready to go. Right. Like it's just it's a happy thing for me. But yeah, it's a good looking machine. That's what I got. So, so that's what you got. Who's talking to us, Richard? <laughs> oh, geez. Am I doing all the work today, I or guess what? So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I grabbed a comment off a show thirteen forty nine. That's right, boys. I went back into the archives four hundred shows ago, September of twenty sixteen, when people oh went outside and everything. Wow, nostalgia. But this was back when. Jeff was running the web forms team, which I don't know if he's doing anymore, mm. but uh, we were talking about how web forms was fine, right? With .NET Core coming along and, you know, web forms is not going to be part of .NET Core. Right. Lots of comments on this show. And, and, and Jeff replied to most of them. Uh, and this is a particular comment from Phil. Mm. I don't know which Phil, but we'll just call him Phil because he calls himself Phil. Uh, from four years ago. So surprise, Phil, an old comment where he says, ASP.NET web forms is like a cockroach. People really don't like it hanging around, but no known force can kill it off. <laughs> All right. Jokes aside, I think it's an underrated technology and great for certain things. I personally like it for small app, one-off projects that definitely will not grow, nor need modern dev ceremony tools like unit testing and integration testing and so forth and so on. That's what you say now. Uh, yeah. That's why I maybe just comment four years later, yeah. right? And uh, don't get me wrong, those dev ceremony tools are great, especially for large, long-lived applications, but they can be overkill in some scenarios. Yeah. And I love how people are hopping on all the new bandwagons, like Angular 2. I think they're up to 9 yeah, now. It's, it's right. Nine? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, but do not stop to consider the old tried and true technology we already have out there with, and that real business needs can be fulfilled with them mm -hmm. just by keeping things simple. Mm -hmm. It's great to give my see Microsoft giving web forms some attention rather than just forgetting about it and all those developers who still use it. Yeah. And that's why I really read the comment was to say, hey, Jeff, four years later, you guys still care about web forms? <laughs> 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 well, 
Jeff needs a proper intro. So wrap. Well, let me thank let uh, me thank Phil, and then we'll intro Jeff. So Phil, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Go By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Go By, write a comment on the website at rocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it in the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Go By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. Rimshot. <laughs> There you go. You happy now? All right. Yes, that thing has buttons for sounds. It has buttons, mini buttons. And the sounds are built in? Uh, yeah, you can load your own from MP3 files. Uh, or WAV files, easy enough. You just load, you stick them on the SD card, and then you, you, you map to them, and you can have multiple banks. So you and Jeff Stream Deck, between the two of you, you could have a conversation in cartoon sounds. That'd be really oh yeah, without really a doubt. Cool. Well, speaking of Jeff, the reason I wanted to give him an intro is because his bio has changed, and uh, I want everybody to hear it. So Jeff Fritz is a Twitch and YouTube partner, as well as the founder of the Live Coders Stream Team and a principal program manager in Microsoft Developer Division on the .NET Community Team, where he leads the organization of the online components of Microsoft's top developer events. The Live Coders is a community of 200 broadcasters making technical content available for free on Twitch through programming, game development, and fun interactions with chat. You can catch Jeff writing .NET code on his video stream called Fritz and Friends at twitch.tv slash C Sharp Fritz. Welcome back, Jeff. D did you see that? Look at the, did you see that bus that just ran over me? Did you see it over there? <laughs> <laughs> that was a platform. Rangy Jeff is the best Jeff. Oh, the best Jeff. <laughs> oh my gosh. Hello. How's it going there, friends? <laughs> Going good, man. Last time I talked to you was on Blazer Train. You know what? Yeah, and yeah. and you blew people's minds, dude. It, there's Ooh. something to be said about uh, about how much fun Blazer is, and all the great places that folks can learn about about Blazer. Um, and and it's going back to the web forms question. It's it's a great model that continues that tradition from web forms of component based development. Mm. The all it, gosh, mm -hmm. you mentioned Angular nine, Richard, right? Um, and I, yeah, I think Angular ten will be released by the end of this podcast, but probably yeah, they're releasing yeah, it now. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but this concept of component based development is just it, it's it's the right way to go. Reuse all these things. Yeah. I mean, we don't we, throw stuff away. We knew that in the enterprise a long time oh ago. Oh my gosh, yes. Where it's at. Right? WinForms WPF upgraded, working great on .NET 5 and yeah. and seeing renewed investment. I'd, I'd like to just say for the for the, for the record, they're at Angular 11. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. As of November. We can't even make jokes oh, about it now. It's just, no, it's, it's like, too, too much. My joke went stale between the beginning of the show and now. So somebody sent me a tweet, Jeff, or, 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 or an email or something saying, hey, on Blazor Train, I love what you're doing, but can you maybe find a, a, a Blazor component that does what the web forms and, you know, some control does? And I said, not only can I find that control, <laughs> I can give you all the controls. <laughs> I pointed to your uh, GitHub uh, repo. And the guy was just like, 
you know, brain explodes. <laughs> and right, there's there's something to be said about, hey, I've got the same markup from that interface, that user interface language into the new one that I want to use. And and yeah. I actually got into a conversation the other day with actually a guest that I think you had on about a month ago, Georgia Nelson. Oh, yeah. And and mm-hmm. she was saying to me, gosh, look at how similar WPF is to the way that I built these tags in in Razor, in Blazor. I said, hey, have I got a project idea for you? <laughs> <laughs> because that's the cool part about Blazor is it's built on a solid foundation of .NET Core. The, the component model is just so elegant. Yeah. And, you know, the markup, eh, do whatever you want. Make your own adapters, whatever. The the build your own tag capability of it and and being able to reuse that and create your own domain-specific language for your yeah. your application ends up being, and I'm, I'm overusing the term domain-specific language, but your own language effectively for your application ends up being really, really helpful to, to get those consistent points across in how you build user interface. So I've, I've been absolutely thrilled with that. And the fact that it's the exact same markup and there is no ceremony to go from component to page, page to component and reuse things. Um, uh, gosh, it, it, it saved me so much time in refactoring and, and moving around content in my applications. Wow. Yeah, that's and when I mean, we've talked about this on the show before. I mean, I, funny, I read a, show, a question, a comment from 2016, but you've done several shows since then, and one of them was this whole is Blazor the way forward for web yeah. folks? Yeah, I, but I mean, the metaphorically they're similar, but you're not going to cut and paste any code. No, you're not. Um, in fact, I I even worked with a, a group of folks um, at a consulting a consulting firm. They were building a tool to help uh, rewrite code, help in, interpret code, and 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 be able to use code as data to generate additional code. They they called their tool Code Factory, and mm-hmm. and I I gave them the concept of the Blazor Web Forms components. And here, let's point to a Web Forms page. And rip out all the beasting notations, less than percent, percent greater than tags, and replace it with the equivalent razor, which is, for the most part, just stick an at sign at the front where you had the less than percent and rip off the percent greater than on the end. And for the most part, you're going to get about 80 to 90 percent of the code converting with just that change. And if the tags can match up pretty easily, like the component library supports we're pretty close to being able to just to refactor our mar- markup. But to your point, the C sharp that runs behind it or that you might have in line isn't necessarily going to convert right away. It's going to take a little bit of time. You're going to yeah. want to inspect it. I mean, some bits and pieces of logic yeah. you'll probably find. Sure. And most of your data access layer can be moved oh, yeah. in ways like you can make that make sense, but uh, it's not, Trivial, you're still talking about a re-engineering oh, yeah. of the app. Absolutely. And that it and I correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but where I'm finding web forms apps is they're internal bits mm-hmm. of software, right? They're inside of companies and they don't need many of the new shiny. It's relatively rare. For sure. Um but then we think about they want to start reducing the costs of their data centers, right? They want to move things to the cloud. Um, they've had these servers running in there for years and years and years. Do they really want to buy new servers? Do they want to extend the lease and lease new, uh, lease new machines? Well, 
if you can do that with cheaper machines, run things on Docker containers on, on less hardware because you moved to .NET Core, .NET 5 with Blazor server side or Blazor WebAssembly, or you put something in the cloud on, on something like Azure Container Service. Well, geez, that's, that's a no brainer to, to save money in processing and you're going to get access to some of those cool new features that evolve on the web. You're going to get right. access to C sharp nine and yep. high end ML.net interactions. You want to start using that? Fantastic. It's all there when you get into .NET five. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I tend to think about moving up to .NET five and blazer and things like that is I want to be better at mobile and, and different form factors and so forth. But I appreciate it also is access to all these other capabilities and too. You're, you're spot on with the mobile. When, when I think about building that Blazor static web app that has, okay, I'm going to be delivering a bunch of, of tree shaken and linked DLLs into the browser and the browser is running on a phone with, with the caching running on that, my web server ends up going almost silent because all that code ends up interacting on the phone after they get their download it's all cached and that's a good thing for me cache the data that that's going to be presented there and take advantage of some of those things that exist in progressive web apps and that whole sphere that folks in web forms just haven't been able to even consider for the better part of 20 years without massive engineering hurdles and and tricks to pull now you you've also rattled a whole bunch of technologies off there Jeff. So, I mean, should we talk a little bit about static web apps? Because I don't think the name is great. Like when I hear static web app, I automatically hear bad web app. I hear index.html. That's right. Absolutely. Just (laughs) index.html. You know, the fastest web app is the web app that doesn't run any code on the server. Yeah, you know, the, yeah. the fastest website is the one that isn't up, too. But that doesn't mean that this I get is true. ready to do This is true. But when I think about so let's let's unpack the, the static web app. This is something I've been having a lot of fun with the past three, four months on my Twitch stream. Mm-hmm. Bla- Blazor static web app, or let's just start with a static web app, is is really a way for you to deploy static contents, HTML, JavaScript, CSS, images, fonts, to someplace on Azure that runs and just serves that content serves it quickly and any processing that you may need to do you have azure functions next to it that'll respond to http triggers interact and deliver whatever response you need so maybe you want to allow folks to upload a profile picture fine you upload it into uh, a put request or a post request onto that uh, azure function gets put into Azure storage and you're able to retrieve and cache that on, on your application piece of cake. Yeah. You know, maybe what the problem is when I hear static web app, I think it couldn't be a video, but of course it could be a video. That's still a static resource just loaded on the page. And we should mention. So there's the next step. You're absolutely right. Carl is when Blazor compiles, it, it delivers, delivers a bunch of DLLs and JavaScript to, to bootstrap those DLLs. So yeah, I can cache that with WebAssembly with WASM in the browser, right? And it, it actually stores it in, in the application storage of the browser. It's not a cookie or something in cache. It's, it's actually stored in the browser in, in that space that were allocated in the HTML5 enabled browsers. 
great. Yeah. Now I don't need to reload it. I don't even need to query to reload it or and and get those 304 notifications that, hey, you, yeah, this content's been cached because it knows it's in the browser. Yeah. Right. Very cool. I just did a whole PWA thing on Blazor Train. And if you want to use the same cache that the uh, boilerplate uh, PWA stuff in Blazor uses, you, you sort of have to come up with a name and uh, then you have to make sure that you do your own caching for things that aren't, you know, automatically oh, yeah. done. It's, it's, it's not, it's trivial, not trivial, but when it's but, done right, that web application is going to yeah. sing and it's going to feel more like a native application. And, yeah. and that's something that I think um, is something that, that folks underestimate who are coming from the .NET experience and looking at it and thinking, oh, we need to be doing JavaScript. I need to be using Angular right. 11, 10, whichever version. 11? Okay. 11. 12? Uh, 12. Oh. <laughs> I, yeah. Did you blink? <laughs> they got to release a version of Chrome or four before that. Um, so <laughs> maybe. Um, so what I think is, <laughs> is really compelling about this is we know how to do all these caching tricks. We know where to put these things, but we're going to run into the same problem that we would have as Blazor developers that the folks who build Java, JavaScript single page applications run into the the search engines the the crawlers that run for twitter and facebook and what have you that that put up the cards the social media cards from the open graph tags we put into our web pages it doesn't know how to crawl and find those on a single page application it'll it'll hit your blazer application and stop because the google bot doesn't know how to run webassembly the bing bot doesn't know what to do with this Bot, right, isn't that what it's bot? It's my favorite <laughs> Korean dish. <laughs> mm. Bing bot. Super little sriracha on that. Fantastic. Oh yeah. Um, so right, we've got to figure out ways then to circumvent that and and work around that. Now, when you're running Blazor WebAssembly and hosting it on an ASP.NET Core application, we can get pre-rendering of our WebAssembly content being delivered by ASP.NET Core. But then you're running on WebAssembly or some other server that's responding to every request. A processor is running and parsing and handling the request and delivering content. Yep. Or you've got a caching implants sitting in front of that so that it's caching those responses and uh, this, that, and the other. Money, 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 money. Handling all those requests. So there's some ways around this and, and in tinkering with, with building with Blazor WebAssembly and Blazor static web apps, I'm finding and I'm, I'm enjoying using more and more of the Azure platform, the entire cloud service and, and using that to augment. And these are free features that I'm able to use and deliver significant value on top of my Blazor application without hitting mm. a server to deliver my content. So yeah. it works nice. nicely when you when you start layering in things like Azure Front Door, Azure Search, um, more and more of uh, of Azure Storage, whether it's the queues, the service bus. Service bus is a separate feature, but queues, table storage, blob storage. Blob storage lets you serve JSON files directly into the browser. Now, 
Is there a rule against making API calls in a static web application? Oh, not at all. No, no rules against that. The Azure functions are there and they, they run great. I want to minimize those number of calls because I want to aggressively cache with appropriate expires headers Mm -hmm. coming out of things like table storage and, and my blob storage where I can cache things. I want to cache that aggressively so that I'm not going back because Azure functions, you're charged per execution. So it's great that it's per what, 10,000 executions or something like that. So when we start penny pinching, I don't want functions to execute. I want to reduce that number as small as possible. Well, and and to be clear, like if you were lazy about composing a page, you could be making dozens of function calls per render. And right, but then that, that goes back to what we experienced with, um, with web forms, the, the blinking of a page as content waits to be loaded. We've got to take down the content that's on the right side of the page, load the data from the server, render it in the browser. And that's a pain in the neck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are certain realities though. I mean, if you're, if you're dealing with some sort of dynamically changing data sets, you know, where you've got people adding and updating and you know, modifying things, you know, like a leaderboard or something, there's no getting around that you have to refresh that data on a, uh, you know, on a schedule that's probably, you know, not going to, it's going to bust your cash wide open. Sure. But you know what, in the times between when that, when that data was created, I can cash for a couple minutes. I can cash for five, 10 minutes or however long it is between, the, the data change. So good example of this. I have, I have a website that I've built that, that shows my hat collection. Did you know I like hats? Have I mentioned? Uh, yeah. No, I heard, I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. That in sequence. Oh, yeah. yes. Heard. Goatee. <laughs> funny, uh, fun, fun dye. colored beards. Yes. I've done that too. Um, or is it a Van Dyke? I think it's a Van Dyke <laughs> that you have, isn't it? <laughs> if it's purple, is it still a Van Dyke? No. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, I wrote a little website to, to allow folks to see, here's the hats that are in my collection. I let folks on stream, uh, ask for me to put on a different hat. And, uh, I also use the hats as an indicator of what's happening that day. Today, I did some work with GitHub Actions. I wore my right. GitHub hat. When you look at the replay, oh, Fritz is wearing a GitHub hat. Here's what's going on that day. So, uh-huh. um, so when I want to give folks this list, I mean, it's, it, it's silly. It's a collection of, of my hats, but let's make that into a blazer static web app because let's face it, they don't change that often, but there's a little database. Right. There's a collection of images that I can store out in Azure blob storage and just relate them with the same file name. So when you come into the website, I can deliver, here's the JSON file of all the hats that we have. And that's, I only have 50 hats loaded now. So load that up into memory, store it in the browser, and all the rest of the content is for rendering is just cached. A little bit of CSS, um, uh, some gadgetry around the bootstrap CSS framework, and a little salt, a little pepper. Absolutely, <laughs> right? So I can do search across that really quickly too, because it's it's a JSON file in memory. It's a collection. I mean, 50 items to search through with link is that's a snap. That's easy, right? A browser eats mm-hmm. that for lunch. Sure. 
Well, and again, computing on the client side, like you're not consuming, you're not asking the server to figure this out for you. Exactly. I'm and I'm not pushing all of the hats down immediately. I can use the the loading equals lazy tag on my images. So if you only are looking at the first two rows of hats, six hats, well, I'm not loading up the other 40 some images. Great. Now there's less pressure on on the queries into my storage and there's less requests on your machine trying to go get that data. So it's a nice balance. How often do you update the photos of your hats? That, wow, that sounds like a, a fashion faux pas not to be updating those. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there's got to be some interval. And I'm just thinking in terms of the techniques are refreshing caches because, you know, as a, someone who did a lot of cache work over the years, we had this sort of smart cache replacement approach where we didn't care about serving out-of-date data. You know, sometimes out-of-date being to mean milliseconds. But what we did care was not having the user wait while the cache yes. was being repopulated. So you didn't just trash your cache and then you refilled it on the next request. Mm-hmm. You would build new cache items and then you just swap them in. Right. So at the point that I that I upload new new hat records, I, I repopulate the JSON on disk and it knows to re I invalidate it at that time. So that you you will immediately mm-hmm. get here's the new data because I typically do those uploads in the middle of a stream, right? I let people see, oh, well, hey, gosh, I'm showing off a new hat today. Let's get it loaded into the collection. It'll take five minutes. Take and and I have a bot actually that takes pictures of the hat while I'm on camera, and uh, I load it into Custom Vision, Azure Custom Vision. So, okay, I'm going to geek out for a second. Bowler bot. Yeah. Is no. It a bot? No, or it's it's bot? Fritz bot. I it's my bot, but it it takes pictures <laughs> out of OBS, right? The Open Broadcaster software. It it grabs a frame from my camera and uploads it into Custom Vision AI. So after it okay. gets 15 images, it knows how to identify that hat. So in the future, mm. folks can execute the hat command in chat and it reports back, well, here's the hat that you're wearing. Here's what's interesting about that hat. I'll add some information into that into that data store for the hat collection. It's all the same location on Azure. And now I've got another item in the website. I've got the bot knows how to detect it and we can continue having silly fun and hijinks on stream. Mm-hmm. You know, the key is never grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. Just don't, don't. <laughs> yeah. Right. And uh, hold that thought for just one second while we take this very important pause for this very even more important message. This portion of .NET Rocks is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring and analytics platform combining metrics, distributed traces, and logs in one place. Datadog helps leading companies migrate to the cloud, transform to a microservices architecture, or transition from .NET to .NET Core. With interactive and drag-and-drop dashboards, see a high-level overview of your .NET applications alongside the health and performance metrics from the applications underlying Azure VMs. Start managing the health of your .NET apps with a free Datadog trial, and they'll send you a free t-shirt. Go to datadoghq.com slash .NET rocks. That's datadoghq.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl. That's Richard. Hey. 
And that's Jeff Fritz, and we're talking about uh, static hey, can web you apps. Be quiet over there! I'm trying to talk Azure's on the radio. I'm on the radio with those two guys, the .NET guys. No, shh, shh. <laughs> Sorry, the dog's getting out of line over Sorry. here. Oh, I thought it was your pet armadillo. I'm not in Texas. <laughs> For some reason, I just had this image of you talking to a rainbow spray-painted armadillo that was making noise. Would have to be a nine-banded armadillo then, for yeah. sure, if you really um, paint it properly. I don't know. I just get the three-banded would not Hang do. On, I'm, I'm it's taking not inclusive notes. enough. Nine-banded <laughs> rainbow armadillo. Is there two L's in armadillo? <laughs> Oh, that works. Okay. Yes. All right. <laughs> Are you happy now that you know I didn't just make up the term nine banded armadillo? It really is a nine banded armadillo. Oh, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go and bingle that right now. Yeah, see that? There you go. Yeah. Now I have the kind of friends that when I pop out a line like that, they go to Wikipedia <laughs> and edit it to make it an eight banded armadillo. And then and then pull that page and send it to me and go, You're wrong. Well, you know, by the time we're done with this episode, there'll be a ten banded armadillo. Uh, clearly. <laughs> Okay, so to those right. of you out there that are listening, if you're listening to this podcast, go out to Wikipedia and check and see if there is a 8, 9, or 10 banded armadillo and get back to us. <laughs> okay, what were we talking about before? Uh, yeah. I'm sure there was some work in here somewhere. I'm, you know, the funny, I was thinking about the scenario you were painting earlier, Carl, about this. I have a sort of real-time update component. It's like, isn't that where Signal R comes into play? Like, it yes. still be a static page. Right, no backend rendering per se, but then you have this component that's pulling a constant stream Richard, of data. In. You, you, fat smeller. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> you are. <laughs> but it's, you know the problem with again with the term, it's like where's the static part exactly? Right, I know they could, we just call these. But here's apps. But what's static about it is we don't yeah. have a server that's actually rendering each individual page. Right, we, the the base right. and all the computing that's assembling all this is happening in the browser. Uh, so there's no server for yeah, UI. We've already words. generated. We've rendered yeah. all the UI because we've used our, our favorite editor, Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code, Visual Studio for Mac, Visual Studio for I don't. That's I guess that's the only Visual Studios we have. <gasps> Buy now comes with a free set of Ginsu knives. But wait, if you there's act more. Now it'll come with live share. GitHub code spaces and more. And a giant armadillo, which is different from the nine banded armadillo. I know. I looked it up. <laughs> uh, I think I, I see another bus coming. coming. Right, Here comes the next bus. There you go. Yeah. <sighs> but this also sounds, you know, we were doing this sort of thing for a while. When you think about back oh, in yeah. the early days of Angular and. Uh, and Durandal and so forth. It was all the client side rendering thing. Let's stop making all the page work happen on the server and you know, utilize resources better. I'm you're just trying to figure out how this is better, like or or different. It's kind of the same thing. It, it is. It's exactly the same thing. We're taking advantage of more of these services that are already built for us on Azure that deliver those features, those capabilities mm -hmm. that we don't need to think about. Building a search appliance is is a pain in the neck. But Azure Cognitive Services has search available for us that will monitor a, a SQL Server database or Azure Table Storage. And as records change in those data stores, it re-indexes on the fly. So now 
I don't right. need to think about, well, go trigger the external process over here with some sort of a queue message to go rebuild and deploy and, and swap out the index when you have the new index on. No, it does it all for us. And there's a, f- and there's a free tier to wow. it. I can, I can lob 50 meg of data in there and 50 meg is a lot of data when you're talking about just a, a list of contacts or something that, I can, I can right. create an index around that simply. Um, I get a, an endpoint I can hit and, and activate cores, the, the cross origin resource sharing. So I can hit it and, and make sure that only those queries are coming from my application and deliver great search results with the ability to scale later if I get more data. Okay. Right. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It just, I still don't know that we have great tooling to build websites this way. That really encourages down the sort of the pit of success. You're right. We we need help there. There's the the visual interaction to build these websites, to build and and deliver. You're faced with with writing text, right? Now, Visual Studio, Visual Studio mm-hmm. Code, Visual Studio for Mac, the whole family provides a, a really nice um, razor editing tool that that gives you all the IntelliSense, all the refactoring capabilities built into it. Um, but it doesn't give you that visual editor that we had back in the day. Here, back to web forms. Darn it, they brought me back to web forms. Um, <laughs> now go away, you nice man. Yeah. So is that something that would be really nice to have to let folks edit and build? Well, I, I would almost argue that that's what you have with power apps. And and there becomes the story right. of, well, if you if you want to build something quick and visual, power apps is, is a great way to go. Hook that up to to a SharePoint service, hook that up to Azure Functions and interact with that and a bunch of other Azure services. That's great. And of course, you can deploy those power apps, whether it's web, mobile, whatever. It, it's a nice place to fit things in there. It's always been a problem, though. It's been a square peg and round hole problem with web designers because one of the big benefits of the web is flow. You know, it just you, you resize the, your screens come in all different sizes and whatever, and you, you need to make things work UI wise. They're not it's not pixel based. You can't get a grid and just, you know, put drag points around a text box and expand it to wherever you want it to go, you know, because it's not a static sized screen. I'm going to agree with you, but I'm also going to hedge, hedge my agreement. There's when I, when I think back to where we were in 1996, 1997, dear Lord, 20 some years ago. And, (laughs) and right. The only thing we cared about as far as the different sizes are when somebody decided to resize their browser. But yeah, today you've got really weird oversized, um, screen sizes, like the size of the monitors that Richard has. I- I've got a 43 inch ultra wide screen here. Yeah. Yeah. The 21 nines. Like who does, why do people build web pages for 21 nine size screens? Like here I am maximizing across this 43 inch screen. No. Do you think every no. inch is used? No. Give me, give me, give me the options dialogue that stretches there over you go. acres. That's I, what I've, I'm after. I've actually been trying, um, <laughs> using VR to browse the web and, and, they, yes. I just want to spin around in circles. They 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 put exactly. a pivot on the share. I want Why to can't see I all the way around to the other side of my Excel spreadsheet by spinning around in circles. Yeah, you know I'm working hard because exactly. I need gravel. 
So, but mm. there you go. now we've actually seen an evolution where things like CSS Flex make that whether whether it's the small screen your mobile device it's it's a regular 1920 1080 screen that that a, a, a normal person has on their on their machine or you're looking at something that's ultra wide if you use CSS Flex now everything just fills the appropriate space and wraps appropriately like it did back in the day when we decided to use table layout for everything mm. now yeah right yeah it seems like they've it seems like flex but and no. it's still not a ratified standard it's it's, they've, a they've found a way to simplify yes. the whole media query so problem. when i when i wrap the the concepts of css and sas wrap that together so it builds and, and I'm able to generate CSS appropriately with media queries wrapped around things and and I use flex to lay things out nicely I can do a ton with my layout to make things better using static technologies mm -hmm. once again but to come back to the original point that, that Carl and I were talking about gosh I'd love to be able to just put a square on the screen and move move the, the drag points around well Maybe there's an opportunity there to use flex with some sort of a designer that is allowing us to place things appropriately, size it the way you want and mm -hmm. deliver value. I tell you, if there was that kind of thing for Blazor, there'd be no stopping it. I mean, it, it would be talk about productivity. Yeah, you. I, I think you're onto something there. Yeah. I, I also think um, there's a rather large, rather vocal quotient of the uh, uh, web developer community that would see that that type of designer was available for it and would immediately um, turn their backs on it and say, oh, that's that's Fisher Bryce technology. We don't yeah, we don't use that. Of course. Well, you always have that battle of the, the folks who want to write their code by hand and and like a dynamic visualizer, like as I'm creating the code, I can oh, see yeah. it rendered. That's that's cool. And those who want to be able to drag and drop. But I mean, honestly, if you want, I think the best drag and drop experience that exists right yeah. now is in the power apps world. Like, it, and again, they put you in a fairly tidy can of what you you know can do in that space. But if you're doing forms over data, you'd have a tough time beating this. If, you, if, they, if the data you're looking for is in the cloud that you're working in, presumably Azure, like, boy, oh boy, it reminds me of the old VB days. Like, it is so wildly productive where the, the main skill you're coming to the table with is domain knowledge, not programming knowledge. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you on that. It push all the technology to the side so that you can be a, a subject matter expert and be productive. I, I look at, I, I spent some time working with Gatsby over the last few months and Gatsby has an amazing, oh, yeah. um, automatic refresh and reload of whatever component is you're working on inside the web browser when you're in that development experience. Uh, we've tried to replicate that type of experience in, in ASP.NET with Blazor using .NET Watch Run with a Blazor WebAssembly app and you get this, this nice refresh experience, but it, it's a built compiled language you have to wait for it to compile and rerun the entire application in the browser the the inner loop there is something that we the dotnet team want to improve but man is it nice with gatsby 
it just immediately you press control yeah. s yeah. or or colon s in, inside your your vim uh vim as a text editor and you see it update immediately in the browser um it is quite impressive is that where i want to be i, I think that's that that's a programmer a developer an engineer who's just way too excited about their tools that that wants to have all of those things handy and and it doesn't it, it doesn't do to a little bit of what, what Carl was saying. It doesn't democratize and make this technology accessible for everybody to be able to interact with. And that that's become something that's closer and closer to my heart. I want to make sure that anybody anywhere can can start learning .NET, can get involved with Blazor, can can build applications easily on whatever technology they have available to them, whether it's a, a Chromebook mm-hmm. Or a Fire tablet, or or a Windows desktop, or a Mac laptop. Jeff, do you have this experience? Uh, Microsoft comes out with some innovative technology that addresses a need in a in a subgroup of the community, and it addresses that need very well for those people. And you get a whole bunch of uh, people who don't want to use that technology, just throwing stones at it. And you know, it's not for them, but. But they're, you know, they're thinking just because you are innovating for this particular set of the community that you will stop innovating for the rest of the people or, you know, that all these other things that they're currently using are going away. I mean, is it me or do do the Internet masses have this sort of reactionary uh, reaction? Let me tell you about a little feature called C-sharp nine top level statements. Have you seen this? Uh, yeah, I think I have, but refresh my memory. I haven't used it. Sure. So the idea is when you write a, a regular console application with, with .NET, you have to start off with a csproj file. You need to have a class file, you know, write public static void main, string array of arguments, and console.writeline hello world. There's a lot of goo that, that sits around that, that project file to just get this running. Well, what if we can take all that ceremony right. to the side and you can just write in an application as console write line hello world? That's the idea with, yeah. with, uh, top level statements in C sharp is with C sharp nine, dot net five and forward, you can write very simple one file and it runs. Maybe you need a csproj file next to it so that you can specify some uh, imports, some other libraries you want to include and away it goes, right? You're able to .NET run and it just executes. Well, there's all kinds of ways you can use that then to learn and tinker with various APIs and technologies because you end up writing two or three lines of code and a, there was a, a group of folks in the community that, that were saying, why would I ever use this? This feels like something that I, I don't need to get involved with it. You know, it, it isn't solving a need for me. Well, that's, that's okay because right. exactly to your point, Carl, when I want to teach folks, they can just write two or three lines of code and learn a for loop, learn an if statement, select case, and and see exactly how easy it is to write without getting into the minutia of all the object-oriented interactions. I think a general um, feature of being a mature internet user, uh, a, a, you know, a good aspect is to be able to not respond when things are out there that yeah. you don't like. Yeah. Just don't use them. 
it, it's it's just simple then, maturity, you know. You don't have to but to poop all over things just because you don't find that useful. So let me turn around and, and, and exactly what you're saying. Let me, let me ask you, if you get a question that I hear a lot working with blazer training, hey, how's it going over there, Richard? I'm going to talk to Carl for a second here. Um, so <laughs> I get the question from a lot of folks that are learning blazer. Well, gosh, why do I choose blazer over angular or react or view? And it, why, why would right. I, you know, prefer this when I can use this technology that's been around for 10 plus years. And then the follow-up question is always, well, gosh, why isn't Microsoft using Blazor in all of their production applications? Well, it, it takes a while to build these things and the project planning cycles are really, really long. When we think about Bing, there's a great case study out there about how Bing is using ASP.NET Core and and now on .NET 5 and how much performance improvement they've seen. But are they going to go and migrate to, to Blazor and turn it into a Blazor static web app? Right. Well, and the answer is, you know, if you're a JavaScript shop and you've invested all this exactly. stuff in Angular, just use it. Yeah. It's not like exactly. it's broken. Heck, it's on version 11. Yeah. Oh. No 12 by now. <laughs> Wait, did you blink again? No, but to that point, exactly. like there isn't one way to be successful here. There's yeah. so many choices. But I think it's very interesting that at version nine, you're thinking in terms of how do I get new people involved in C Sharp? Like that's in, in, pretty cool. I, I really applaud the team. They've done some really cool work around notebooks. Have you seen how notebooks work with C Sharp now? Mm-hmm. And you're talking Jupyter Notebooks, right? There's Jupyter Notebooks, oh, yeah. and now there's .NET Notebooks that run inside Visual Studio Code. What? I've got a better know framework cool. coming up where we're going to talk about running a Jupyter Python notebook inside Excel. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. I, I ran a, a series of streams on the Visual Studio channel where we taught the basics of C Sharp, and we did it all in the browser using Jupyter Notebooks. And it runs a technology called .NET Interactive behind the scenes to compile your code and deliver it into the browser. But the next version of that runs with Blazor. So it all compiles and runs in the browser. And now a good chunk of the .NET docs where you have C-sharp samples being shown, you can actually click and run and tinker with the samples live inside the Microsoft docs for .NET. Now we're talking. Now we're teaching cool. and giving you that hands-on experience without all the ceremony of go install Visual Studio, bring down Visual Studio code and make sure the SDK is configured, blah, 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 blah. But it speaks to this, you know, this reminds me of the early days of .NET uh, when Studio wasn't quite ready. And we were mostly mm. doing this stuff in Notepad, right? You'd write some code in Notepad and then you could throw it to the compiler. You know, they, they, and there was this whole point of like, listen, you don't have to use the big tool like this, all this lightweight stuff. This is just a super yeah. smart, yeah. lightweight approach. So this, this, uh, came about this, this whole sort of maturity, internet maturity thing came about when I asked some people on my Twitter feed, Hey, do you think anybody would be interested in, uh, music to code by on vinyl? Ooh. Yeah. And the reason I asked that is because I've noticed that, it, well, anybody who's been paying attention to sales, vinyl sales last year outdid what? CD sales. Think about that for a minute. Yes. There was more well, vinyl sold. And it's much, that's got much to do with how out of date CDs are. Uh, it's both. Vinyl sales are on the rise. CD sales are down. 
But p- there's a whole very strong contingent of people, and it's not just um, people like us who grew up with vinyl. It, it's millennials that have, you know, record players and love vinyl, and they like the experience of it and the smell of records and the the jackets and reading them and the artwork and the whole ceremony of, you know, using your disc washer and cleaning your discs and all that stuff. And I thought, well, you know, uh, a side of an LP can, you know, 25 minutes is pushing it, but, you know, maybe you cut it down to 23 or 24 and and it, it's the perfect opportunity when that thing hits the end of the record to get up and go to the, you know, record player and turn it over and start another Pomodoro. So, I thought it was a cool idea and a few people said yes, but there was a, quite a few people that said, you know, my my record player is in the other room. Why would I want that? Okay, so so that's it. Don't use it. You know, I'm thinking about somebody at the club who's going to be taking the the vinyl and being able to scratch and do some really cool things with music to code by. <laughs> Dropping a beat to that fine fine uh, purple track. That, that music. <laughs> Uh, in, in all seriousness, my my fifteen year old daughter, I can't believe it, fifteen year old, um, for for Christmas she wanted yeah. a a there was a special release of Why Don't We? Um, they had a, a album they were releasing, and there was a special release on cassette. I'm like, you're asking me for a cassette for Christmas? <laughs> wow. Like. I'll here. I'll drop the, the right. ten bucks and get the entire album on iTunes, and you can have it. No, no, it's a special edition that's a signed cassette with this, that, and the other. I'm like, you don't even have a cassette right. player. Yeah, let me go pull out my I mean, Walkman I have, from 1989. Yeah, I have an, an old stereo at my parents' place that then has a cassette deck on it. I can run over there and get it. But uh, what? 1982. Well, the funny thing is, if it's been sitting for long enough, the chances that it's just going to destroy the tape when you put it in there are pretty high. Oh, you're right. Right? It's like, oh, you finally took the cassette tape player off. What did it do? It ate the tape. Plus, is there any redeeming value of cassettes in terms of the aesthetic or the experience? Like, compared to, you know, it it was a little more, um, should we say, convenient from the records. It was a portable thing. Sure. Yeah. But it, right. but he, he, the mm-hmm. ultimate convenience is Spotify, and so if you're not after convenience, you're after experience. Really the vinyl is. experience, yeah. I think, is the most interesting so, experience. Anyway, if you have any thoughts about yeah. that, email me at carlofranklins.net. You don't think about it, Jeff. What's next for you, man? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, gosh, we are we are coming into the spring conference season, so the, these conferences are lining up back to back to back to back. Uh, we have MVP Summit coming up in March, but before that, actually, in February, the end of February, uh, we just announced we're running another .NET Conf. .NET Conf, focus on Windows yeah, development. That was an interesting idea. I'm definitely going to be tuning in. So, the, the yeah, the biggest feedback that we got coming out of .NET Conf in November was you've got this, these great updates for Windows development, for Windows Forms and WPF, but... We'd like to hear more. So uh, February 25th, we're going to have a full day of Windows development talking about all the Windows things, WinForms, WPF, Mixed Reality, um, WinUI, UWP, and and we might talk about a little technology called .NET MAUI in there. We 
might. Very cool. Mm, yeah. Well, I've been waiting to see some useful news around Mo- Maui. Coming soon. It's We are taking on a hard problem, man. No two ways about Very it. Very hard problem. And uh, we've got the right folks working on it who, who know how to go through and, and cross these these operating system boundaries. Very good. Jeff, it's always fun to talk to you, and this is no exception. So thanks a lot for spending your time with us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right, I'm just about done over there, okay? <laughs> Let me just walk away from the guy. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a